Welcome to The Human Perspective with internationally recognized badass disability activist Judy Human. Over the past couple of weeks, we've seen the rise in discussion surrounding conservatorships and guardianships due to the publicity surrounding Britney Spears' fight to end her own conservatorship. Today, Judy is chatting with Judith, a disabled woman from Kentucky who was put under guardianship and stripped of her rights once she turned 18. With the support from a whole team of people, including one of our other guests, Laura Butler from My Choice Kentucky, Judith successfully fought to terminate her guardianship. Along with Laura and Judith, Judy is joined by Alicia Mancini-Duor, who is a staff attorney at Disability Rights Pennsylvania, and Morgan Whitlatch, who is the legal director of Quality Trust for Individuals with Disabilities. She also serves as the lead project director of the National Resource Center for Supported Decision-Making. While this episode may be timely, the discussion surrounding guardianships and conservatorships needs to continue even when the press dies down. The Human Perspective is produced by me, Becca Howell and Judy Human. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to The Human Perspective. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, get some snacks ready, whatever makes you feel best, and let's meet our guests today. Hello, everybody. I'd like to welcome you back to The Human Perspective. Today's discussion is going to be focusing on conservatorship or guardianship. Um, As many of you know, at this period, now we're taping this in July of 2021, uh, because of Britney Spears, there's been a lot more focus and discussion on issues around guardianship and conservatorship. This is an issue that the disability community young and old have been engaged in for many decades now. And the people that we're presenting to you today are individuals who both have personal experience um, having been under guardianship and having been successfully able to get out from other under guardianship and others who are working in the field in various capacities who are working to help both prevent people from going into conservatorship and guardianship Um, and also getting out if they're in. So what we're gonna do right now is I'm gonna ask each one of our presenters, and we have more today than typical um, because there's a richness of work going on in the field. I'm gonna ask each of you, if you could please quickly give us your name, a little bit of information about what you do. And I'm also interested to know why this is work that you wanted to get into. If we could start with Alicia. Hi, my name is Alicia Mancini-Dewar. I'm a staff attorney at Disability Rights Pennsylvania. And my work there is based on representing people who are facing guardianship and also helping people remove guardianship. Um, I'm interested in this work because I believe in people's basic fundamental rights to self-govern. I think it's important to allow people to have the right to make their own decisions and That's just really important to me. That's why I became an attorney. Thank you. Laura. Hi, my name is Laura Butler. I am the project director of My Choice Kentucky at the Human Development Institute at the University of Kentucky. And that project helps train people about supported decision-making and alternatives to guardianship. 
as well as support people who are seeking to have their rights restored or avoid guardianship. And why was this job something of interest to you? So yeah, so it was interesting to me because I have been working with people with disabilities and I saw how restrictive guardianship can be for some people, especially um, a lot of people who probably didn't need to be in guardianship. So it was really interesting to me to help people get out of those guardianships. And Alicia said that she was a lawyer. Are you a lawyer? I am not a lawyer. No, I'm a disability advocate. So I think what's important about knowing that you're not a lawyer is that people can be involved in this work and will work with lawyers uh, when necessary, but you don't have to be a lawyer to be involved in this work. Um, Morgan. Hi, I'm Morgan Whitlatch. I'm the legal director at Quality Trust for Individuals with Disabilities, which is an advocacy organization for people with disabilities that's based in the District of Columbia. I am a lawyer. Um, I'm also the lead project director of the National Resource Center for Supported Decision Making, and I've been involved and really devoted my 20-year law career to disability justice issues, particularly those relating to guardianship and alternatives to guardianship. So I provide legal representation as well as systemic advocacy. And this is really important to me because I think that we, when we think about disability justice issues, re recognizing people's rights to have autonomy and control over their own lives is critically important. Morgan, could you briefly explain to the audience what guardianship is and conservatorship? Absolutely. So um, the, the specific procedures vary by state, but guardianship on conservatorship is a legal process by which a court declares that an adult is incapable of making some or all of their own decisions and appoints a third party to make them for the person. And so while the scope may vary, depending on court order and state law, in all cases, it means that there's a loss of personal autonomy that people subject to it can no longer be recognized as having certain kinds of legal rights to direct their own lives. So they can lose rights like fundamental choices about where they live, you know, what kind of medical, psychiatric, or psychological treatment they receive and who they get it from, how they can access and spend their own money or where they can work, where they can go, even who, where they can, you know, spend time with, who, what friends they can have. And in, guardianship can also impact a person's right to vote and marry in some states. So it's a really critical issue to be examining here today. Thank you. So Judith, can you explain a little bit about how you wound up being under guardianship? I was sent away by my brother. He sent me away while my dad was still living and I couldn't see him. So I was, Sometimes I would sneak out because he would be so close to me, I would see Was your father sick? Yes. My dad was, wasn't capable enough of taking care of me, but my brother still put me in guardianship because of that. And did you have any um, ability to discuss whether or not you wanted to be getting these kinds of protections? No. So they were limiting your ability to spend time with your father. That's right. Mm -hmm. And how did that make you feel at the time? Uh, bad, mostly. How did you learn about the fact that you could possibly get out from under guardianship? Well, my brothers told me that I couldn't walk, couldn't talk or anything. And I basically didn't listen to him. I listened to the other people. 
and they helped me with it. So that's how I got out. So what were you doing every day? Who were the people that you were with that gave you that information? My case manager was Jennifer. She's right here with me. Hey, Jennifer, thank you. So tell us, Judith, now that you're out of guardianship, how does it feel for you? It feels exciting to have my own rights and come in here and get to pick on Alicia when I want to. <laughs> Call Jenny anytime I want to. I'll live where I live at. Yeah, I was just going to ask you. So um, how many people do you live with? Just one. But I have a big new family. Right. I saw some of that. So tell us a little bit about your, your new family. My new family likes to travel. So do I. And we can just pack up our stuff. and don't even have to ask for permission to go. Just do it. Yeah, they're just... Show expression. Happiness. Happiness. That's a very important word. I think, you know, Judith, one of the things that's very important about you is that you were able to work with other people to make something that was important to you happen and to be able to have your own life. So this is a question that I'm going to ask of Morgan, Alicia, and Laura. What kind of work related to guardianship and less restrictive options are you actually doing? Laura, you want to start? Sure, um, I can start. So we partner with our state protection and advocacy agency on this project. So they help provide um, legal representation and uh, cons consultation for people who are seeking to have their rights restored. So they help um, with the court system. We also do trainings across the state um, and even nationally about supported decision-making and alternatives to guardianship. We try to educate the people who are most likely to encourage people to seek guardianship. So that includes um, educators, medical professionals, uh, other members of the court system, and make sure that people know that there are alternatives to guardianship because even still after years of discussing it, a lot of people are not aware that there are any alternatives other than seeking a full legal guardianship for a person. And how successful do you believe this has been working? It, it's been slow going, but I think uh, it has been gaining traction. Um, I know some people have been experienced judges asking if the person has, um, if, if other alternatives have been considered for the person before guardianship was sought. And that's something that was definitely not happening a few years ago. Um, we're also seeing it in um, the families of young people who are turning 18, rather than immediately going to guardianship because they've heard about these options, they are stopping and asking questions and seeking more information. So as that grows and snowballs, I think we'll see a much bigger impact in the coming years. Thank you. Alicia, so what kind of work relating to guardianship and less restrictive options are you working on now? So this is Alicia, it's similar to Laura, um, Disability Rights Pennsylvania in my neck of the woods. We do education and training about alternatives to guardianship because they've been around for like a long time, two decades, but people still don't know about them. 
So similar to Laura, we do those educations and trainings um, to members of the community who might think they need to seek guardianship for a loved one, healthcare providers, um, and lawyers, um, which is a, a big one. I also do direct representation of uh, people facing guardianship proceedings um, in a particular county in Pennsylvania. And um, I think that's been very successful. Actually, you know, in two years, we've done 19 representations of people facing guardianship and from 19, 10 of them resulted in no guardianship whatsoever. And, you know, the remaining ones, most of them were some kind of limited guardianship, which I do consider an alternative to guardianship. A limited guardianship is one where it's very clear what powers the guardian has, as opposed to broad powers over every aspect of the person's life. And, um, and I've done some rep representations of people to remove their guardianship as well. So it's been very exciting and uh, I'm glad to be a part of it. Thank you, Morgan. So as the legal director at Quality Trust, um, I do provide direct legal representation and guardianship contestation and restoration of rights matters um, like Alicia. Um, through our Jenny Hatch Justice Project. Um, and we've had some notable successes. We've represented the first DC resident to have his guardianship terminated in favor of supported decision-making, as well as the first DC senior to have that same result. Um, so really trying to do this from a kind of across age spectrum approach. Um, we, I also co-represented the uh, Jenny Hatch Justice Project namesake in fighting for her right to engage in supported decision-making as an alternative to plenary guardianship. So, you know, our direct legal service work, including, it also includes kind of diversion from guardianship, because I think there's a lot of on-ramps to guardianship, and one really effective way to try to avoid overbroad or undue guardianship is to try to screen out those kinds of cases where less restrictive options will work better for the person, um, and, and you know, promote their right to autonomy. So we do a lot of that work, including trying to educate people about less known options like supported decision-making agreements where people kind of formalize arrangements where they get help from the people that they select and trust to make their own decisions. Um, and um, I also am very involved in systemic legislative and policy initiatives. Um, so, you know, we have been able to, in the District of Columbia, uh, advocate for the first in the nation educational supported decision making policy from DC public schools in 2013. Um, and reform DC guardianship law to really promote the due process rights of people with disabilities who are facing guardianship, including the right to zealous legal representation of their express wishes in court. Um, and DC was the fourth jurisdiction in the country to formally recognize supported decision-making agreements in its statute. So it's kind of a combination of both direct legal service work as well as policy initiatives. And then I've also worked under certain cooperative agreements with the National Council on Disability on reports that were designed to educate the public and Congress and the administration in 2018 and 2019 about really the, while it's a state law issue associated with guardianship and conservatorship, it really does implicate certain kinds of federal policy uh, work, um, including rights under the American with Disabilities Act. Why don't we get back to some of this? But Judith, I wanted to ask you another question. And that is, you know, we've been talking about something called supportive decision-making. Um, do you have a team of people that if you have a question, um, you can talk with them 
if you want to help you come to a decision. Yeah, I talk to them every day. Are there particular issues that you might want to talk to your uh, support group about? Finance. Yeah. Finance is a very complicated issue, I can just say for me. 13 years I had a job at Kathy, I worked. Oh, okay. But for those 13 years, you were earning a salary. Yeah, not since COVID. If I can make a comment about supported decision-making, um, there's a big push now to codify it in every state. So codify means what? Uh, turn it into law. And um, you know, in Pennsylvania, it's not codified. I don't think it's necessary to be codified because when you think about what supported decision-making is, we all use supported decision-making all the time, right? Like if I need a medical procedure, I'm gonna to talk to my friends and my husband and see what they think. If I have a financial problem, I'm going to do the same. That's all supported decision-making is. It's simply recognizing that we all depend on support from our circle of friends and family or even professionals. And, and that's all it is. And, and to make that into some foreign thing for people with disabilities and say like, it, it's something more than that, it's really not. It's just recognizing that we all need supports to make decisions. And, and in Pennsylvania, there's actually case law, meaning like a, a case that went through the courts that recognized that this is a substitute for guardianship. If you have friends and family and a circle of support, that's, that's all you need. And um, I just wanted to point that out because there's a lot of talk right now about supported decision-making and people over, uh, it, they make it more complicated than it really is, I think. I agree very much with you. And I think, thank you very much for this comment because it really allows, like when we talk about things like universal design, in the built environment, for example, what we've been saying is what people have seen as accommodations for someone who has a disability is really an accommodation that most often benefits everyone. And so I think not everyone, whether they have a disability or not, uh, recognizes supported decision-making in a formal or informal way. And I think the way that you just presented it should be a lot of ahas to people listening that, oh yeah, you know, sometimes I need someone who's got more knowledge than I do and really speaking to other people, my friends who I trust, because that's a big issue around this is trust. Um, this is Morgan and I 100% agree with Alicia. You do not need to have statutory or law change in order to use supported decision-making at all. And the case that Alicia referenced, I think was from something like 1999, right? So, I mean, it's been in, your, in, the, in the case law in Pennsylvania, the idea of a circle of support preventing guardianship. Um, and I think, you know, normalizing the idea of supported decision-making is extraordinarily important. I worry sometimes with this kind of movement towards codifying supported decision-making or putting it into law, we'll start to think about supported decision-making as a piece of paper or a form. When we all know that supported decision-making on the ground looks very different than that. And it's not a piece of paper. It's about really supporting people to be able to, you know, have the autonomy that they deserve to have as human beings. Um, so I couldn't agree with that more uh, about that. 
Alicia's right that we're seeing this kind of movement towards this codification and, and formal recognition of supported decision making, which some say have benefits. Some see it as being kind of more stigmatizing, like you're treating supported decision making as different for people with disabilities. I know in Alaska, they kind of adopted a universal design approach like you're talking about, Judy, where they said, you don't, you know, you don't have to have a disability to use a supported decision making agreement. Anybody can. Um, and they didn't link it expressly to the American with Disabilities Act, like a lot of the laws we're seeing do. And so I like the idea of kind of innovating, thinking about how you kind of promote a formal recognition while realizing that it doesn't need to be formal. It can be very informal um, and, and really trying to tease out those kinds of principles. What are some of the barriers that you see uh, people facing in trying to avoid guardianship or get their rights res uh, restored? Sure. This is Alicia. I, I think the biggest barrier is ableism and discrimination against people with disabilities because, you know, alternatives to guardianship already exist, as Laura said, as Morgan said, they've been on the books for like 20 years and they're just ignored. And I think the reason they're ignored is there is a general attitude and it might be subconscious with, you know, in the legal system with judges, with lawyers, that people with disabilities, that their rights don't matter. And as long as you think their rights don't matter, you're not going to fight for those rights. So um, I think it's a real pervasive problem that needs to be like overcome. People need to learn about their own feelings of ableism and how they're treating others who are disabled before they can really stick up for the rights of people with disabilities. Um, and then there's, you know, there's other issues, too. But I think that's the biggest issue. In the work that you've been doing, do you know of any law programs, law school programs where people are studying to be lawyers, where this issue is discussed? And is it discussed in the manner that we're discussing it now, uh, looking at prevention as opposed to jumping into guardianship? This is Morgan. I, you know, I have seen some law school clinics kind of be promoting um, help people with supported decision making agreements in those states, for example, that have been, um, you know, like Texas and and places that have had the supported decision making agreement legislation for the longest. Um, I've also, you know, but unfortunately, I still see kind of elder law issues. This falls within kind of the elder law issues. Sometimes um, not have the same kind of disability rights focus that it should have in thinking about guardianship, not in that kind of benevolent way, but as a potential for abuse and that it can like any kind of legal tool be misused. And we need to kind of really be thinking, you know, about robust enforcement of the legal due process rights that should be associated with guardianship. So I think we're seeing some movement in legal education, but I think there needs to be a lot more. Um, just as there needs to be education of judges, um, school professionals, uh, doctors, there also needs to be a lot of education of lawyers, and it needs to start early. I would be totally promoting the idea of it being in law school. So, Laura, what's your experience been in this regard? Uh, yes, similar. So we um, have had discussions with some of the law schools in the state of Kentucky. Um, being at a university ourselves, um, we've tried to have that discussion, and they have been interested in it, but we haven't gotten a lot of traction in formally introducing it 
um, as part of their coursework. Um, it's definitely something that we are interested in. We've even tried to get some law students involved in our work, um, but it just, it hasn't really gained that traction that we would like to see. Mrs. Morgan, just to add, there's also some movements to try to be promoting in the kind of law school clinic forum representation. So I know that the Cardoza Law School in New York has a guardianship program that really is focused on kind of enforcing the rights of people to have due process and have their rights restored. Um, we're also seeing, uh, but however, on the flip side, I also see some law school clinics that focus on helping people get guardianship. So I think there is, you know, that still a lot of education that needs to be done to kind of balance it more towards, you know, promoting the decision-making rights of people as opposed to getting guardianships. What do you see as some of the major reasons that people think guardianship is something that uh, should be pursued? And is there any responsibility for informing the individual for whom guardianship is being sought to uh, give them information about what they can do to prevent this? This is Alicia. Yeah, I think, um, like I already have mentioned, ableism is a big problem. But I also think some of the petitioners for guardianship, those are the people asking for guardianship, they don't know about the alternatives. And their lawyers don't know about the alternatives or their lawyers are withholding information about the alternatives because they can make more money petitioning for guardianship than they can just telling them, hey, support your disabled relative. That's all you need to do. Right. That doesn't make a lawyer any money. So that sounds really negative. Um, but. Like a lot of the alternatives for guardianship are things where lawyers can't profit off of. Um, the second part of your question about. Um, I think it was about the person facing guardianship. I mean, there are notice requirements in Pennsylvania. I imagine there probably are in other states where they do have to receive notice 21 days before the hearing that they're facing a guardianship proceeding and that they have a right to an attorney. Um, in Pennsylvania, they have to ask for an attorney actively. I don't know how it is in other states. I know um, Morgan and I were part of a national guardianship summit about trying to reform like the model guardianship laws. And one of the suggestions is everyone facing guardianship proceedings should be represented by counsel, by good counsel. It's probably, a, you know, there's there's counsel and then there's good counsel. Right. So um, I think that that's important to protect people's rights as well. Morgan. Morgan, I agree. I mean, I would agree. I think the right to counsel is should be fundamental and it should be um, it should be both of the per court appointed as well. It could be also the person retaining a counsel of their choice. I think you look at the right to counsel and then you like look to the role of counsel. And in some states, the role of counsel is not one as a zealous advocate for the person's wishes. It's more of a guardian at litem or looking at the best interests of the person. Rather, you know, and I think as an attorney, it kind of totally goes against my grain to think you wouldn't listen to your client and advocate as zealously as possible for what their outcomes, wished outcomes are. Um, even if you're unsuccessful, you have to give them that opportunity to be able to be heard in court. Um, and I think there needs to be a lot more reforms in that area, both in terms of the right to counsel, but the role of counsel. Um, and, and we had to actually have statutory reform in DC to make it more of a reality that you're entitled to zealous representation of your express wishes. Uh, Laura. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree with um, all of that. Um, and to speak to your point about um, your question about 
why people are seeking guardianship. I think um, lack of knowledge of alternatives is definitely a reason. Um, and I think that comes from the fact that guardianship has been around for centuries, the, the concept of guardianship. And it's just what people know. And so a lot of the people that we work with have had a guardian, legal guardian since they were 18 years old. And that's because when they were turning 18 years old, their family said, if you want to protect them and take care of them, you need to get guardianship. And that was lack of education about what guardianship is for one and the fact that alternatives do exist. So I don't think usually it is a malevolent reason that people seek guardianship for someone. Um, there are those out there, but for the most part, they're just trying to do what they think they should do. Um, and one of our parents um, that we worked with, she said, you know, I fought for my um, son for his entire school life to be in the least restrictive environment. And then as soon as he turned 18, I jumped directly into the most restrictive option. She said, because that's just what she was scared she didn't know what else to do. And so she just jumped right in there. And to her credit, she um, has helped her son now get his rights restored. Um, so I think it's just not knowing that there's anything different to do and being scared about what's coming next, uh, especially for a family member. And, um, you know, I, I, that's, a, that's a tough thing for families um, when they're dealing with a whole lot of other issues. Um, and I think that would be true of someone um, with a mental health diagnosis or an elderly relative as well. So Judith, uh, when you were going into court to have the guardianship removed, were you afraid at all? Yes, I was. And what did you do to prepare? I just, they appointed me a lawyer and they put me on the witness stand. I didn't know what to really to do. I had detectives and advocacy to help me. So while you were nervous, did you feel confident? Still scared. Will be. Yes. Still scared, yeah. But obviously you did, you were able to really discuss why guardianship was bad for you and um, what supported decision-making was gonna be able to help you do. So you convinced the judge, right? So I think probably part of what's important about this part of our discussion is helping uh, people who are working on getting out of guardianship, be able to be prepared uh, to discuss with the judge, uh, with people around them who you trusted and others trust. So it's, it's clearly something that can be done, but is difficult to do. Yes, it's very difficult, but you gotta keep fighting. Yeah, so that's really, I think Judith, one of the important parts about who you are. You've got a real fighting spirit, um, which I think is something that everybody on this program has today is a fighting spirit. Um, if I could just for a minute talk about the aging population, because uh, we talk about ableism, I think we also need to talk about ageism and uh, a bias towards people who are older. Do you find that you need to be, uh, that you can present the same 
types of alternatives um, when looking at the issue for older people and guardianship, or do you have to be more nuanced in the way you are working on these issues? This is Morgan. Uh, so, you know, we, we have represented seniors in getting their guardianship terminated, and I did that as well when I was at a protection advocacy system before joining Quality Trust. You do have to approach the case differently, just as you kind of have to approach the case differently with anybody you work with, but there's certain things to think about when you're dealing with aging. First of all, when we talk about working with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, we talk about building capacity over time or building decision-making skills over time. What do you do when you're dealing with cognitive decline, either associated with dementia or memory loss that comes as we age? Um, and so how are you going to set up the safeguards in whatever you're going to be promoting to a judge, because you've got to convince the judge, um, what's going to happen if there's a further decline? What other alternatives do you have in place in the event the person gets to a point where they can't communicate a choice? Um, it's also very much important to be thinking about advanced planning and powers of attorney that would spring into effect when the person can't make a decision. You also need to think about older adults' support networks. They can look very different and people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Um, as you grow older, your natural supports, they, they shrink, right? Because you, you know, you're either, you can become a lot more isolated. You know, uh, older adults are, are, are also very prone to isolation. So you're gonna be depending upon more potentially professional support. So how can we build up someone's community supports when they're aging so they don't become isolated? So that there are the appropriate safeguards that really it's necessary to show to a court in order to make them feel as though guardianship isn't necessary because there is an ageism um, that permeates just as there's an ableism that permeates these systems. So you do have to approach it differently. Um, and I think if you do it in a thoughtful kind of way, it, it, it's possible. You just have to do a lot of education of judges and try to get them to move away from the idea that just because as you grow older, guardianship is the only option. Now, I think all of you in some way are working on this issue at a national level. If you could share briefly with us uh, what is going on and what is it that people listening to this program could do to become more knowledgeable or supportive um, of the issue of preventing guardianship and the ability to get out of guardianship, even if they don't have a specialty in this area? Like why should the average person be concerned about the discussion we're having today? This is Alicia. I think to answer your last question, the average person should be concerned because this could be any one of us, right? If we're lucky enough to live long enough, we're going to see a decline of our capacity. And would we want someone else to make all of our decisions for us just because we're, you know, the doctor says that we're legally incompetent. That's the term we use in Pennsylvania. I wouldn't. I would still want to make some of my own decisions. So just try to have empathy and realize that this could be you. It, like if you're someone who struggles with empathy, put yourself in this position and realize if you live long enough, this will be you. And will you want someone else to make all of your decisions? Probably not. And, um, you know, on a national scale, there's lots of stuff going on. You know, I already mentioned supported decision making. I get calls about that a lot almost every day at DRP. And I would just encourage you if you're like trying to push for supported decision-making in your state, recognize that it already exists. All it means is you're getting people, the person is getting support from the people they trust in their life. And we don't necessarily have to pass a law. And uh, 
just try to support people wherever they're at right now, like recognize their abilities and what they can do. We don't have to wait for some law to pass about supported decision-making to let people have support um, and make their own decisions. And there's lots of other stuff going on and Morgan knows a lot more than me. So I'm gonna defer to her. This is Morgan. I absolutely agree with Alicia. I, the number one kind of barrier I see to people using supported decision-making is they call me and say, I can't use supported decision-making, Morgan, because my state hasn't passed a law. And I think that's, we need to think about, you don't need law change for supported decision-making. I think on the national scale, there are a lot of exciting things that are happening, um, particularly over like the last five years in the United States. I think the National Guardianship Summit Forum that Alicia was talking about um, is the most recent um, uh, kind of consensus building endeavor uh, from practitioners across the nation to really develop certain ideas for reform. And so I think that what is something you can do? You can be looking at how can I support changes in state law to recognize due process rights of people? How can I make sure to educate all the service providers that are around me that there are options other than guardianship and that guardianship has with it so many myths that people that need to be busted, that we all need to help people bust. How can I be supporting people to be able to live, you know, you know, actualized lives. Um, I have found that the one of the best things that people can do is really adopt a kind of peer-to-peer -peer kind of training mod, you know, module. In other words, parents educating parents, lawyers educating lawyers, doctors educating doctors, judges educating judges, because it can really help to have to, to type to demystify the concept. And finally, I think one of the best ways on the ground to be promoting alternatives is to show people with disabilities and those with lived experiences using the alternatives how it works for them in very concrete, practical ways. When I present, I always present with an advocate with a disability or an older adult. Um, that's one of my goals, um, because I think really hearing those kinds of personal stories um, can really kind of demystify concepts that we're talking about today. Laura, do you have anything you wanna add to this? I completely agree. Um, my work on the national level is usually talking to people about how they can do this work in their own state or their own community. Um, and that just involves learning about um, alternatives to guardianship. You can learn that um, within your state or from the national leaders. There's a lot more information out there than there was several years ago when I got started. Um, and just get out there and do it. We are basically are a project of two people and we do everything we can to get out there across the state and talk to people about this and try to change the way things are happening. Um, and the more people you talk to, the more people they're gonna talk to and it can really grow. So um, yeah, just like Alicia said, just get out there and do it. Um, and you know, you never know, it might be something that helps you out one day in the future. And I think Judith, um, when, when Judith was talking about what it was like to get out of guardianship, I think she said it best. She said it was like coming out of the darkness into the light. And I think that's probably what a lot of people feel. So Judith, I'd like you to be the final person to uh, present on this panel today. And uh, are there any words that you would like to give to our audience about why the issue of guardianship is something people should be concerned about? Just thanks for watching and listening. I hope you can use this for your next move. When they first said, tell me they granted my wish to let me have my guardianship back, <laughs> me and Stacy Thomason, she's my payee, 
Me and her, we set her stuff down, ran through the fountain. I asked for permission. So first. I'd like to thank you all very much <laughs> for the work that you do every day. And, and we will put so up so uh, links to some of the materials that people have discussed today. So thank you all <laughs> very much and have a good day. And uh, look forward to the progress that you're making uh, within your communities, states, and nationally. Thank you. You've been tuning into The Human Perspective with Judy Human. If you are looking for actionable ways to support and advocate for those who are at risk of being under guardianship or conservatorship, please check out the episode description for more information. The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yontero, and Juaren. And the outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to The Human Perspective. And be sure to follow Judy on Twitter at Judith Human and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective. Welcome. Welcome.